The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 18. The Guards Themselves. Today's episode differs slightly from the others that we've presented so far. Rather than examine one king's reign, or the writings of a particular set of authors, today's episode takes the form of something like an Egyptian courtroom drama. First, the prosecution's allegations are as follows. That in the last years of his reign, a group of courtiers and bodyguards conspired to murder the king, Teti. Secondly, the evidence. We look at contemporary tombs and chapels from the period to see what leads us to the possibility that an Egyptian monarch was murdered. Thirdly, we discuss the possible motivations of such a conspiracy. And last, the prosecution rests its case on the matter, and we decide, was Teti, a god-king of Egypt, really murdered? The assassination of an Egyptian king was an extremely rare event, and we know of only three instances throughout the entirety of Egyptian history where it is really discussed. Of these three, only one has been proven to have actually occurred, thanks to the preservation and examination of that king's mummy. Teti's mummy has not survived in more than skeletal fragments, so we can't examine his body to prove bloody murder. His tomb was empty when discovered, so we can't even search his funerary goods for evidence of a hasty burial. In fact, of his entire reign, very few records actually exist, except for a decree excusing a small temple at Abydos from taxation, as well as the pyramid texts which were carved into his tomb, and a few pieces of administrative documents in other areas. So where does the story of Teti's assassination come from? The Greek historian Manetho, writing in the 3rd century BCE, recounted the tale of Teti's assassination, that he was attacked by his bodyguards in the night. The conspiracy, according to Manetho, was hatched by members of the royal family and several courtiers. But how did Manetho, writing nearly 2,000 years after the fact, know that this happened? Manetho was a high priest of the temple at Heliopolis, which is near the old capital of Memphis, now a suburb of Cairo. Manetho was a literate man connected with Egypt's oldest formal cult, the cult of Atum Re. The temple at Heliopolis functioned well into the Roman period, and survived until the rise of Christianity put paid to Egyptian religion for good. So in the Ptolemaic period, when Manetho was writing, it is postulated that the temple of Atum Re at Heliopolis may have served as an archive for documents concerning Egypt's history. Now, this is pretty much speculation, but it's as close to an educated guess as we're likely to get for Manetho's sources. So Manetho may have got the tale from some old record, which set down events that had occurred in Egypt's past. He certainly had access to the oral traditions of the priesthood, and the stories which were known about Egypt's great kings. While we don't have direct evidence from the Old Kingdom that the assassination attempt occurred, this isn't necessarily proof that it didn't happen. 
We do, however, have to take Manatho's claim cautiously. Manatho's story on the murder of Teti has been investigated in the modern day by an Egyptologist from Sydney's Macquarie University, an Egyptian native named Naguib Kanawati. Having conducted archaeological excavations in the Old Kingdom Cemetery around Teti's pyramid, Kanawati used the opportunity to investigate Manatho's claim and see if any tombs in the area could shed light on the story of Teti's murder. This episode will go through some of that evidence and try to reconstruct the assassination attempt and its aftermath. Several tombs that were built during the reign of Teti were defaced in antiquity. The names of their owners were erased, not always successfully, and their images were chiseled away. For the Egyptians, to deface an individual's tomb like this was an enormous crime and only meted out to the most hated of criminals. To destroy the image of a person was to banish them to obscurity and prevent their ba or soul from finding its way back to the tomb. To remove their name was even worse. An individual's name was his identity, and Egyptians often make vague references to having more than one name, one of which was private and hidden from the outside world. To know a person's secret name was to know their innermost nature, and a legend even existed in which the goddess Isis took it upon herself to learn the secret name of the king of the gods, Atum Re. By a combination of deceit and cunning, she eventually learned Atum Re's secret name, and the god was so threatened by this that he swore her to secrecy. So, to be familiar with a person's name, public or secret, was to have some power over them. To destroy a person's name, especially the name recorded in their tomb, was to devastate their hopes of achieving a meaningful afterlife. The officials from Teti's reign, who were punished with this desecration, were many. But the three highest ranked were for men named Hesi, Mereri, and Si Ankhwi Ta. Hesi was one of Teti's viziers, the highest administrative position within the kingdom. Mereri was the overseer of weapons, a title which probably means he was responsible for the troops who served the king on his expeditions into Libya, Nubia, and the Sinai Peninsula. Si Ankhwi Ta was the chief physician, who probably served the king whenever he fell ill. Three men, a vizier, a soldier, and a doctor, all punished with what is known as damnatio memoriae, the systematic obliteration of name, image, and record to condemn an individual to eternal obscurity. The crime must have been extreme. Hesse's autobiography, which was not erased except for his name, recorded a glowing career which had all the markings of a celebrated official. Listen to this. I was a judge and a scribe in the time of Jedkare Izezi. I was a judge and an overseer of scribes in the time of Unas. It was Teti, my lord, who promoted me as a judge and an administrator, who promoted me as a royal chamberlain. His majesty caused this to be done for me, 
because His Majesty knew my name when he sought a scribe of talent without a mentor. He remembered that I spoke to him wisely. Hesse was a talented man who served two kings, Jedkare and Unas, with obedience. When Teti took the throne, Hesse would have been in his late forties at least, and the new king recognized that Hesse was a man of honesty and wise counsel. Rather than choosing a scribe who had the backing of an influential courtier, Teti promoted Hesse for his talent. The text continues. I became a scribe for his majesty, ahead of the other scribes. I became a nobleman for his majesty, ahead of the other noblemen. His majesty had allowed that I accede to the great boat of the palace, and that I be welcomed on the roads, and that gifts be made to me, as if I was a royal chamberlain, when in fact I was only a judge and administrator. Never was the like done for any equal of mine. His Majesty was discussing matters with me amongst the noblemen, while I was only a judge and an overseer of scribes, because His Majesty knew the name of one who was more distinguished than any other servant. Hesse was promoted rapidly in Teti's early reign, and allowed to advise the king among the company of elite noblemen who should have had social seniority. Hesse was allowed to travel on the royal ship as it sailed the Nile, and to use the roads with as much freedom as any royal chamberlain. For a man as decorated and as respected as Hesse, he must have made a serious transgression against the king or the society around him. Regicide would probably fit that criteria, don't you think? But it's not enough to condemn a group based on one example of desecration. Let's look at Mereri, a man whose name translates to I am one who loves, or I am beloved. Mereri was the overseer of weapons. He was also an overseer of the courtiers, an overseer of the royal palace, a guard for the king's pyramid, and was one of the small group of men known as the Semer Wa, or soul companions. His tomb was built across a small street from that of Hesse, suggesting that he was a contemporary of this individual. Before he died, or shortly thereafter, the tomb was repurposed for a woman named Mary Nebti. The figures of Mereri, which had been carved already, were defaced, with chisel marks damaging the face and the ankles of the figure. I think the idea was to remove his identifying features and hobble his ability to walk in the afterlife. Human remains found in the burial chamber were fragmentary pieces of a female skeleton, but they had been disturbed millennia ago by tomb robbers. It seems that Mereri's body was removed from the tomb so that the complex could be reused, thus condemning Mereri to an afterlife of homeless wandering. Si Anquita's tomb suffered the same treatment. The figures and names of the chief physician were chiseled out, including, in some cases, the figure of his wife. The damage done to the tomb was not systematic or comprehensive, by which I mean, in several places, the name of Si Anquita escaped destruction 
or the figures were not wholly erased. The official's wife also survives in several places, but is defaced in others. The reason I note this is that studying tomb defacement is a difficult process in Egyptian history. Due to the high proportion of desecration which occurred during the early Christian era of Egypt's Roman and Byzantine history. When local villages in this time were converted to Christianity, there often followed a wave of religious fervor which led locals to deface images they considered idolatrous or heretical. The tombs and temples of the pagan cults were particularly good targets for this, with the result that easily visible tombs, or the walls of temples, were often damaged by those seeking to fulfill the biblical commandments against idolatry. The thing is, when these fanatics did this, they tended to be particularly thorough about removing any divine image they found heretical, but they weren't particularly concerned with images of humans or the names of dead Egyptians. So when archaeologists encounter desecration, it is always useful to check whether the damage focuses on divine beings or on individual people. If it's the latter, the cause is more likely to have been deliberate removal of one's legacy back in the ancient past. So, these men were desecrated during Egypt's ancient period, and they were punished with this obliteration because of a crime for which little record has survived. The circumstantial evidence for a conspiracy seems to be taking shape, but let's not condemn Hesi, Mereri, or Si Anquita just yet. To gather more evidence for the supposed conspiracy to murder King Teti, we must look at his reign itself, for any evidence which might point to the motivations or circumstances for a group to attempt regicide. Teti's reign is noteworthy for an unusual development within the royal court itself. Sometime during his early years, the king decided to enlarge and expand the corps of officials who served as royal guards, as sentries and protectors of the palace. These officials, known in many areas as the Kenti She, were a group of officials whose roles and functions are extremely hard to pin down. They show up in temples, in provincial administration, in small towns, and basically anywhere that had some kind of estate or building associated with the king. Their original function seems to have been bodyguards and protectors. But as the royal administration was expanded during the 5th dynasty, the Kenti She took on administrative roles as well. By the reign of Teti, to be a Kenti She was to be part of a small but prestigious corps of individuals who served the king as bodyguards and administrators, truly one of the elite officials of the kingdom. Soon after Teti's death, a great number of tombs belonging to Kenti She officials were desecrated intentionally. Their names were hacked out, their faces chiseled away, and their ankles symbolically broken to deprive the spirit of its ability to walk. If we combine the desecration of these tombs with that inflicted on the officials Hesi, Mereri, and Si Anquita, the evidence becomes a bit more damning. High-level officials could displease the king in any number of ways, 
But for such a large number of Kentishe bodyguards to meet the same fate suggests a widespread conspiracy involving many individuals. More importantly, it tells us that a great number of Teti's own bodyguards were implicated in the conspiracy and punished for their complicity. There is an old Latin proverb, who will guard the guards themselves? The phrase is generally taken from the Roman satirist Juvenal, but it stems from Greek philosophical musings on political authority and the nature of power. The essence of the saying is quite simple. Who's going to watch over those who are supposed to be watching over you? In the case of bodyguards, if you have guards, who's going to make sure that the guards behave themselves? If you simply add more guards, then you have to ask who will guard them, and so on and so forth. The problem is a universal one, afflicting all those who seek to wield supreme authority. Power attracts jealousy and malicious intent, and sometimes that threat comes from the very people who are supposed to be protecting you. I'm not sure if Teti was aware of this philosophical conundrum, but he certainly felt the effects of its basic principles. His bodyguards, or at least a significant number of them, turned on him in collusion with several officials as part of a conspiracy to murder the king. Regicide, the act of killing a king or queen, is as old as monarchy itself, but in Egypt, to kill a king was to murder a god. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. How did the guards and officials involved in this conspiracy possibly rationalize such an action? I have an idea. It's not an idea that has been generally proposed or discussed in the academic scholarship, but I think it has some merit, at least on a psychological level. Just bear in mind that this is one of those times where I'm veering slightly away from my more solid academic sources and into speculation. Here goes. The attempt on Teti's life was almost certainly motivated by mundane desire for power. Whoever was leading the conspiracy probably intended to replace Teti either with themselves or with someone they could control, like a royal cousin or nephew. The desire to seize the throne wouldn't be hard to rationalize. You see it in a lot of cultures that have a supreme monarch. But to actually go ahead with this plot against a man 
who your entire religious and cultural ideology says is the living incarnation of a god, is something else entirely. But I wonder, did Tete's own divinity actually make the job easier on a symbolic level? By the time Tete came to power, the cult of Osiris had developed a serious influence in the way Egyptian kings thought of the afterlife. When a king died, he transformed from his earthly body, which was the incarnation of Horus, into the celestial king of the dead, Osiris. What I sometimes wonder is, did the idea that Teti would transform into the king of the dead, Osiris, encourage the conspiracy to feel their actions weren't necessarily that heretical? If you think of the king as a god, one who will transform into another deity after death, does that make it easier to risk killing him and replacing him with someone else? To answer that question would require a really extensive discussion on personal piety in Egyptian history, which unfortunately we don't actually know a lot about. All I can say is that the conspiracy was made against Teti, and this suggests something had gone wrong either within the royal family or within the court. The apparent divinity of the king could probably have hindered an attempt to kill him, or it could actually have possibly made it easier. There's less to lose when the one you attack will simply join his divine brethren in the sky. Let's sum up the case so far, and try to decide what happened at the end of Teti's reign. Firstly, the king had come to power by marrying into the royal bloodline. His wife, Iput, was a daughter of King Unas, who had died without a living son. So Teti had less than perfect claims to the throne, which in a monarchy is usually an invitation to others to try and stake their own claim on power. Secondly, the king spent a great deal of effort in his lifetime increasing the size of the royal guard, commonly known as the Candyshay officials. By recruiting more and more people into the role, he both increased the amount of protection available at the palace, and increased the number of low-ranking administrators available to serve in the government. Whether Teti felt insecure on his throne, or simply felt the palace needed more of these officials around, is a matter of debate. Thirdly, shortly after Teti's reign, a large number of high-ranking officials saw their tombs desecrated and their images and names chiseled out of the monuments. This ritual desecration would deprive their souls of identity and mobility in the afterlife, condemning them to a kind of crippled existence in the next world. Besides the high officials, a large number of the Kentishe guards themselves were punished with this same treatment, their tomb chapels desecrated and broken by agents of the next king. If I were a prosecutor today, I'd probably suggest the circumstantial evidence is pretty supportive of the idea that Teti, first king of the sixth dynasty, was murdered in his palace by a group of his guards. The conspiracy reached into the highest levels of his palace court, and the officials there, including a vizier, the chief physician, and a member of the royal bodyguard, an overseer of soldiers, 
colluded with members of the Kentishe officials to strike the king down. Now we don't have the smoking gun evidence, so to speak, and we probably never will. Let us simply say that as best as we can tell, the King Teti was murdered by members of his household. He was of an unknown age, but had been king for approximately 23 years. The death of Teti brought with it another break in the royal lineage. Teti did not have a living son, and the closest male relative was a young boy named Pepi. Pepi was the grandson of Unas, via a daughter named Idut. Idut was presumably the sister or half-sister of Iput, who married Teti and placed him on the throne. Teti was therefore the uncle by marriage of Pepi, making the young boy's claim relatively strong. Pepi was destined to be pushed aside for a short time, as the throne was usurped by a man named Userkare. We do not know where Userkare came from, but the fact that he was able to take the throne ahead of Pepi suggests that he was related in some way to the royal bloodline, and had some claim that enabled him to supplant the young prince. At any rate, Usokare reigned for barely a year before he was either dethroned or died, leaving the door open for the young Pepi to claim his birthright and take the throne. The Sixth Dynasty got off to a rocky start. King Teti had been murdered in his palace, and his successor Usokare had died after just a year. But Pepi's reign was destined to be a long one, which would see numerous vigorous policies enacted throughout Egypt, as well as campaigns into the Sinai and Palestine. Join us next time for the reign of Pepi I as we continue the story of Egypt's history. <laughs>